We don't have to engage in this theater of racial awakening because people have been waking up to and understanding their systemic racism since the revolutionary generation. So you don't get special points or any kind of pass for like to, like for saying like, oh, I'm against systemic racism. The question is, well, okay, and what are you going to do about it? Do you like books? I'm outlining a new writing project. Who wrote this book? Read it. Reread it. Sometimes I'd write something. What are you writing? Have you written anything lately? I'm Amanda Stern, and this is Bookable. On today's show, stirring the melting pot. Americans have been raised on a system of myths about race, as though race itself were the problem. But there's no such thing as race. There's only racism. We've invented stories to explain what we don't understand, and it's our belief in these often preposterous ideas that have shaped history. Well, our guest today... Uh Uh-oh. I don't know if I'm ready, Amanda. No, you're ready. He wants to dismantle these lies and remedy the situation. And he offers a full-throated solution. Time for an introduction. My name is Calvin Baker. I am the author of A More Perfect Reunion, Race, Integration, and the Future of America. Calvin Baker. The book begins with a with a wide angle, if you will, about history and where we are in human history and human migration, forces of nationalism. But a more perfect reunion isn't about how far we've come. It's about how far we have to go. And Calvin boils it down to a central thesis. We've come to a point that is repetitive or derivative of the civil rights movement in which we are talking about race and our focus is, is on race, but we're not talking about integration. That's right, integration. Ask anyone if America is integrated and they'll surely say yes. But is it really? An integrated society affords everyone opportunity and the rights of citizenship. And people from de Tocqueville to Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King and Thurgood Marshall all thought integration was the solution to America's racial problem. But despite our many attempts to stir the melting pot, most of us still lead very separate lives. We live adjacent to one another, Mm -hmm. not amongst one another. So if you walk down the street of New York... You will see people of every of every nationality and ethnicity from all parts of the world. But they all live in different neighborhoods. You go to a restaurant or party, and you notice that really everyone here looks the same. There might be one or two exceptions, and so on. And so we tell ourselves that we are, that we're integrated, but in fact, it's really just a veil of diversity, of inclusion, and it doesn't go very deep. It doesn't go to the residential level. It doesn't go to the educational level, and it doesn't go to the economic level. Right. And I think that people don't quite understand that this is not new. You know, that this, the reasons that we live this way hearken all the way back, 
all the way back. You know, we're not on the edge of a of a new civil war, as you say. We're we're still in the first civil war. We're still living the results of the first one that was never finished. We're still living in the old one. Listen, if you look at all the sites, all the the core principles of the Republican Party, and look at the things that they're attacking. They're attacking higher education and affirmative action efforts in higher education. They're attacking voting rights. They are trying to erect a, a police state. They are trying to capture the Supreme Court. All of these things, everything they're attacking was a plank of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which barely right, had to be strong armed through. And in the same way that Mitch McConnell brought all the Republicans into the Senate cloakroom and said, you know, the first order of business is to deny this guy a second term. After Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the first order of business was to resist and defeat it. From a more perfect reunion, page 40. As the colony of Virginia morphed slowly into a society built on the backs of African slaves, the treatment of blacks would grow increasingly inhumane until they were no longer even people anymore in the eyes of the law and their neighbors who wrote it, but property to be bound and held forever. Colonial history, first of all, I would say, is, is nebulous up to a point. But if you look at the written work record and you look at things like the Great Awakening, you see, a, you see a surge in sentiment among Americans that says, you know, democracy and slavery are fundamentally at odds. Right? You can't have this thing we call democracy and something you call slavery. Now, it so happens that several of the, the southern states, and most notably Georgia and the Carolinas, come to these slave economies. But there is also great wealth being created in the north, in shipping and banking. And like the, the cohort that was resistant to eradicating slavery at founding were were these economic interests. So, and this isn't, this sounds like ancient history and it's uh, simply imagine if you've ever been on a committee for anything, if you've ever, right, try to bring a, bring many different competing factions to agreement. And this is what you face at founding. The first draft of the constitution, right, slavery is written out. And but that draft doesn't pass. And right, the South wanted to ensure the right to own slaves. Many people, and it went so right, the divisions went so far that you have George Mason saying, We don't need them. We don't need them in this union. And you cobble together this document that's a compromise, and you never say the word slavery. You are at the same time protecting the rights of slaveholders to hold slaves. But the idea that there should be property in man, which was the term of art of the, of the 18th century, was contentious. 
And it led, as many of the founders knew, directly to the Civil War. The, right, the, the biggest issues of the early 19th century are around like, which state's going to be free and which state's going to be slave, and how do you hold this balance? Mm-hmm. And so we created this balance that we've been more or less deadlocked in ever since. Right. So let me ask, they, the Continental Congress, they recognized that slavery was at odds with democracy, and it was the logical next step to eradicate it and the racial caste system, but they didn't. Again, just map what you know about contemporary American politics. Do this, do this thought experiment, right? And let's say we have a proposal, we're going to we're going to eradicate prisons or right, we're going to reform the prison system. Mm-hmm. And you bring together, you know, Schumer and Pelosi and McConnell, and they're trying to hash something out. <laughs> I mean, right, and that, I mean, that's essentially what our constitution looks like, where you have one group that says no 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 and the other says well if we don't get this we're going to blow the whole thing up from a more perfect reunion page 10 there have been four crucial moments in our history that brought integration to the fore asking how comfortable americans were living with one another as opposed to occupying an apartheid state each moment offered the opportunity to remedy this, an escape from the original sin and eternal problem of race, if only we were willing to embrace it. You have a moment at, at signing, right, the first constitution, when with a little, with a little more dedication, right, if you call the South's bluff, and, and again, even those who were opposed to slavery didn't work like didn't necessarily recommend the full equality of black people. They were they were opposed to the idea of slavery, right? As we have liberals now who believe abstractly in racial justice, but don't know any black people, don't want to know them, look down on them or upon them. The second moment is the Civil War. And okay. right, Lincoln goes to war reluctantly, but is fiercely committed to it. And at some point during the the war, comes to realize, and Frederick Douglass kind of taps him on the shoulder and says, you know, after this war is over, the real work is just getting started. So once you've achieved emancipation, you still have to figure out how to integrate these people into American life and American opportunity, and not simply the America that has oppressed them, but an America that they have a role in shaping. And we have those eight years we call Reconstruction when you see these attempts. But again, there's a huge pushback from the right. And right, the Hayes takes office with the understanding that you've got to withdraw the federal troops from the South. And these are the troops who were enforcing the black right to vote, who were tamping down or ameliorating the wholesale violence that these former Confederates and slaveholders directed at Black people. And this culminates in a series of court cases called the Civil Rights Acts, 
in which the Supreme Court says, you know, we can't we can't enforce this. Like these people have no right to ride on the same train cars to be served in restaurants. Voting, in fact, is a privilege, not a right. And this, like, this ushers in the way, like, this ushers in Jim Crow. And, right, so directly, right after, right after slavery, you know, eight years, and then you snap back. The next phase is the civil rights movement that, as we know it, of the 60s, the 50s and 60s, that's aimed at, in most ways, restoring these rights that were taken away all right, that were won in the war and immediately snatched back. And then, right, and so, and you have 15 years of progress and you see a huge growth in the not big enough, but there's the largest growth in black wealth and the black middle class the country's ever seen. And then you get a Reagan presidency and it snaps back and... You know, I talk about Nixon in the book and his like his strategy of the South is the South and the suburbs, which is great, which you hear Trump saying, oh, the suburbs are going to vote for me. And this is part of the Nixon playbook that says, yeah, you don't really want them in your schools and your neighborhoods and so on and so forth. And this is what the Republican Party has built its platform around ever since. Up until this day, and you listen to the rhetoric that comes from the right, it's it, it, it's not it's no different. John Calhoun could have written Trump's debate notes, could like, could have written this platform. Like they would right if you resurrected the old Confederates from the dead and dropped them in today's Republican Party, they'd recognize it. This okay, we get it. We know what's going on, and. You can't say certain words anymore, but you, but all your policies are aimed at achieving those ends. And we are fighting that battle to this day. Time for a short break. When we come back, we stop getting academic. And Calvin leads us out of this theater of outrage into a more hopeful future. Stick around. Welcome back to Bookable. I'm Amanda Stern here with Calvin Baker, author of A More Perfect Reunion. Despite a few centuries of intellectually interrogating America's racial inequality, systems of oppression are still prevalent. So how does this change? Well, Calvin's got an answer. You need to focus on the results. And you don't, this isn't an exercise in yoga. This isn't, (laughs) right, you don't have to see God and understand the most mysterious, esoteric parts of the human interior. You just have to focus on the outcomes. One metaphor I've been using is, if we're driving, I call you up, hey, Amanda, we're going to drive to, we're going to drive to Philly for the weekend. You're like, oh, great, Calvin. Uh, 
I've got friends. Let's go to Philly. Sounds like a wonderful place. And we're in the car. We catch a flat. And you turn to me and say, well, gee, what happened? How does the engine work? How can I be a good ally in this? And you're just like, Amanda, we're going to fix the flat and keep going. It's that simple. Everything else is a performance. Everything besides fixing the problem. You don't have to, you don't have to understand race to desegregate the public schools. If you understand that there's systemic racism, that the results of it are deliritous, you're like, we're just going to integrate the schools. We write the same with voting as you know, the Supreme Court's been able to pull back provisions that help ensure that everyone has the right to vote. You're like, well, well, how do we understand this? And you're like, it's not mysterious. They don't want people of color to vote. They don't want anyone against them to vote. It gets in their way. So we focus on that site of harm. And we focus on ensuring that everyone can vote. There's this, you know, you say focus on the outcomes. And I think that that's a really solid, easy point, you know, that we somehow like a lot of white people overlook and, you know, including me, like I'm constantly like, well, how do we how do we unwind this? How do we how do we go back and unknot it? And, um, you know, and you're saying basically, well, what what's the result that you want? Start from where you are. Right. That's it's right. If it's a knot, it's a it's a Gridonian knot. And how you are not is you cut through it. From A More Perfect Reunion, page 241. We are not in a new civil war. We're in an old one that was never finished. The anger, fear, and conditioning of the national past are gnawing to reassert themselves in what we imagine to be a more enlightened present, which will never be more enlightened, can never be more enlightened, so long as we continue to recreate the habitat of racism. In all of this, of course, black people suffer most as the doomed center tries to tell them to be patient again, or progressives perform racial awakening for the umpteenth time. That the long arc of history bends towards justice, that the demographics will be the tide to lift the nation out of compromise. Integration asks the same empirical question of everyone, whatever their position in this implausible machine. How long? You know, I've been watching a lot of um, cable news, which I've never done before the pandemic, and I'm watching this theater of outrage night after night after night, you know, white outrage at Trump's racism. And I'm stunned in a way that that people are so stunned and shocked, like still, like they're stuck in something and they can't move past it. They can, it's almost like they're constantly like wearing at the rope every night, you know, like, can you believe this? Can you believe this? Can you believe this? Can you believe this? And I feel like that's sort of what a lot of white people are stuck inside of and don't know how to move forward from. Do you have that sense? I think you have to you have to make some allowances for young people who've been told the world is one way and they've come to realize it's not that way. People who are legitimately just coming to 
certain certain points of awareness because they have in fact been produced their consciousness has been produced by segregation and segregated spaces so if you grow up inside a right a, a white bubble a white liberal bubble and you're told certain things about this country and then you see that punctured and so the the sense of outrage you can say it's legitimate but then you have to ask the the question and this goes to stuckness okay so what do i do with that i'm right. outraged i'm sick and appalled uh i'm indignant that the world works this way so how do you begin to change it what can you do beyond outrage what is the plan and i think we're still closer to the theater and performance of outrage than the real discussion of a plan right civil disobedience is necessary but you get this sort of centrist narrative that well once biden wins everything's going to be fine no it's not <laughs> no it's not right like once we get back to normal you're like well that that sense of normal was really a tug of, in political terms is really a tug of war between the center right and center left over how far America was willing to go in matters of racial justice. Now we've got to go further. Mm-hmm. And right, and people are fond of saying, well, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? You know, the civil rights generation gave us a blueprint. They told us what the sites of harm are that we can mm-hmm. affect. We have to we have to affect them. So it's one thing to be I'm outraged. I'm outraged. And does that come down to the local level? Will you opt out of segregated spaces? Will you not eat in a in a restaurant that is, for all intents, like that's segregated? And which I found myself doing earlier this year when I was working on this book, Amanda, I walk into a restaurant. In Brooklyn, and I looked around, I was like, I don't want to eat here. Because I'm in Brooklyn, right? Again, one of the allegedly diverse, integrated parts of the city. Why is everyone in this why does everyone in this restaurant look a certain way? And so you've recreated this colonial space. Inside of Brooklyn, you're you're resegregating. You're not integrating. And then someone says, "Well, you know, it's an expensive place, and not everyone can afford it." And you're like, "Well, even your staff all looks a certain way." But there's also a reason it's expensive, and you can't afford it. It's because white people move there. Correct. These are interlocking problems. Oh well, I went to college, and I have a, right, a a decent job, and I have some disposable income, and I want to spend it. And you say, okay, so now you've got the problems of universities, you have the problems of gentrification, and you have the problems of how you spend your leisure time and your leisure dollars. Each of them a segregated site. 
And Amanda, I don't want to sound pessimistic. I, I want to point this out. And, I, and I, one of my points in this book is we've been here before. We've come to awakenings before. And right, Uncle Tom's Cabin was a great moment of awakening. And now we're awakening again. And you're like, it's not enough to simply awaken. We must act, which I'm hopeful that we can do. Alvin Baker, author of A More Perfect Reunion. It's published by Bold Type Books and is available now. Bookable is a production of Loud Tree Media. I'm your host, Amanda Stern. Five feet tall and growing more woke by the day. We're produced by me, Bo Friedlander, and Andrew Dunn, who also mixed and sound designed the show. Bo is Loud Tree's editor-in-chief. Find us on the web at bookablepod.com and please subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you want to learn more about our guests, find us on Instagram at bookablepod and follow me, your host, at a little stern. If you're a loyal listener, you'll know that My Stomach Has Appeared as a co-host on this show. Just ask Susan Choi. After much negotiating, my stomach agreed to a cameo on this episode as well. Oh my God, can you hear my stomach? I mean, it's growling. Is that what that was? I I thought you had a dog. I do, but that was my stomach. (laughs) (laughs) This is Bookable.